Wait, and we you started met some talk- dude on Instagram? Yeah. Oh. We met each We met in a group chat. What type of group chat? It's sort of like a boys chat, kind of where guys go to hang out and, and shit talk people and complain. Like it's called um, no more about politics uh, okay. uh, but also also some young woman <laughs> sometimes but anyway we were in we started sending memes back and forth and ranting a lot a few days just ago. in private dm now just you and this guy yeah because we are kind of overwhelming the group chat mm. And then he randomly on Friday afternoon, I, I saw that I had an incoming video call from him and I was sort of perplexed and, and nervous because I don't really like that. There was no warning. And this guy emerged and he, had a, he has a huge beard mm-hmm. and he was smoking a cigarette. He lives in New Orleans and he said, I just had to put, I had to see your face, man. And we had a brief chat. I mean, we were both like highly charged. It was just a weird day. And he and then he said oh it was great finally talking to you and we we he then he started sending me some profiles he'd seen on hinge and i i'd sent him a few too that we just thought were funny Mm -hmm. and and he said dude i i don't know what this means but i thought you were gay (laughs) (laughs) and then he said i think that was just like my wrinkled projection of you though And I said, sadly, I'm not. We both agreed it would be a little easier in some senses. Um, and now, now we're gay for each other. <laughs> but then, I thought the story was going to end that the other guy was gay, and he was trying to sign it. Well, he was very joyous about being gay, but, but it, not in a gay, in a good gay. first pod of 2021 dude. oh shit can you believe nobody thought we would make it this far i'm a little surprised that we made it this yeah. far i don't even want to speak too soon not you know touch wood as they say yeah touch james wood touch james wood <laughs> <laughs> james wood if you're listening to this please 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 come on the pod we really like I'm, the interview. i'm telling you we're gonna i'm gonna bring him on you know i actually drove near i i when I'm home, I do a little light stalking of James Wood. That's good. Um, because he's a hero of mine. I used to see him around with his dogs. I, I've not seen him in years. I don't know where he is. He may have moved for all I know. Yeah. So you could just be stalking some random anesthesiologist's house. And it's some just poor, not James uh, anymore. That might be better for me. I could get some nice drugs to shoot up. Yeah. Yeah, I drive by his house, and the problem is it it it, it leads onto a one, a busy one way street. So I always go down the street, and then I'm screwed. I say always, but this happens like accidentally once. Okay, James, don't don't get paranoid. <laughs> I'm not stalking you. I'm a big fan of your work, and you know that. And we have this whole history together. And I don't want to spoil it on this podcast if you're listening, which he is inevitably. I probably doesn't even listen to podcast. I think he's kind of. I picture him sort of losing his head. I think he essentially is. I mean, he. I don't think he's kind of transitioned well into the new age. I mean, he's not even 
I'm 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 perennially kind of worried about his status at the New Yorker. I don't think, you think he'll get two bend. I think he's going to get two bend. I mean, that's just what they do. Basically, once once somebody gets sort of antiquated and outmoded, they just say, "Well, he took his dick out." <laughs> and so, yeah, I that's mean, exactly they, how that works. And think about it: they go from the tube to the wood. It's a natural <laughs> progression. He's screwed. He's screwed. They just pick the guy with oh the most valid name. Drew, you have read the tea leaves. You are so right. I'm convinced. I wonder if James Wood was on that. I don't think he was on that Zoom. It seemed politically oriented. But um, wait, has anyone proposed the theory that the guy who he was emulating in the simulation was himself a guy who shows his dick on camera, and it was simply him? Yeah. What if it was know, just all part? part of the act? There's got to be politicians who have done that. Uh, uh, what's his name? We Anthony Weiner. Oh yeah, I mean he's that's the canonical who he was playing example. in the simulation. I mean he is an inveterate tuber. Yeah. Another one. Talk about nominative determinism. We got we- <laughs> Wiener, Tubin, Wood. Oh my god! It's written so in the name. You have no choice. It's de- you know it's predetermined. This is, see, this is proof that there's some intelligent design in the world that it, it's not just a huge. At least when it comes accident. to whipping it out in public. Yeah. Certainly there is. But there's I, some galactic cosmic author in charge of this stuff. Thank God I don't have a phallic name or else I'd have been canceled for, you know, years ago. I know. Well, it would have just hastened my demise. It's okay. It's still coming, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but that's why you got to enjoy it while it lasts, this ride. At least you can podcast at any point. Podcasting is sort of the underworld where you kind of just be free so and... And messy. The I mean, there's just such a profusion of podcasters that who's going to go and like silence a podcaster? Mm, that's so true. I mean, I don't know about you, but my model's always been Joe Rogan. Oh my God. Wait, Drew, I'm obsessed with Joe Rogan now. Really? I I mean, I just meant that he's so prolific and and he's a machine. I think he, no, I think he's, he record- no, he is an inspiration. First he of all, is. yes, he's a machine. He's incredibly prolific. His podcasting stamina is second to none. But also his just completely guileless interviewing style. I mean, that's why he's such a good interview. He's like a Warms sponge. My heart. Did, yeah, he, did you see on my Instagram stories when I was listening to Joe Rogan? And he said he was talking with a guest about Italy. And he goes, yo, the art in Italy is queen. <laughs> yeah, he's wonderful. He's, and he yeah, just he's goes so off on Italy. He's like, dude, you go, to, you go to Rome. There's like billions of dollars of art there. <laughs> Yeah, the Vatican is just a vast <laughs> art gallery. He's brain around all the art that they have in Italy. It was awesome. I want to find like a transcript of that. It was just like, it just cured my depression for a whole day. Shit, I should watch him then. I, I mean, I've only seen clips, but I do find him to be an inspiration as a aspiring podcaster or practicing podcaster myself. Well, you know, I want to see him interview the big K. I that, think would that would be incredible. That would be the end. But then we'd sort of be out of. I out tweeted of that from our official. Where would we go from there if if you showed up on Joe no, Rogan? No, because before? it would simply funnel more of Rogan's followers into our show. Oh, that would be brilliant. Would, there would be a surge of interest in Canal Score, and people would say, "Where can I learn more about him?" And uh, yeah, you know, I think we should. We need to encourage Carl to go. Carl Ove to go on Rogan before anything else. I desperately want to see. I want to see that more than any other. I mean, maybe he can go on to to promote his new book, about which I know very little or nothing. Oh, yeah. So, 
Yeah, I think that takes us into our first order of business today, which is uh, to talk about Canasgard's new essay collection that neither of us have read uh, or planned to read. I didn't even read. know. I didn't even yeah. know it was forthcoming. I didn't know anything about it. I'm totally bewildered by it. And to be completely honest, I didn't even know. I'm so tuned out now that I didn't even know he had an essay collection until several of our listeners uh, messaged me about it, too. They were like, I'm sure you've already seen this, but uh, just, you know, in case you haven't, I was like, nope, I haven't seen it. <laughs> Thank you for I'm letting happy, me know. I'm happy you have a correspondence with the listeners. They never reach I out to me. I know. I think I'm beloved by our listeners, and they see me as like a benevolent Mother Teresa thing. Wow. Well, Mother Teresa was evil. I think they, they found oh, out. That's the point. <laughs> she made people, she forced um, poor people to starve. Well, Christopher Hitchens did a whole thing about it. The Hitch. Um, the yeah. Hitch. I, <laughs> okay. This is from listener. Uh, so this is great because listener, let me just call him Ben mm-hmm. to protect his identity. He, uh, mm-hmm. he picked out some choice bits for us. So he messaged me and he says, uh, here's the essay collection. He said, it mostly gets panned. I haven't read the book but props to the critic for this phrasing. And he quotes, In his fiction, Knausgaard's crucial gift is for sweeping low over the humble details of life and imbuing them with than one thought possible. Ideas do percolate through his novels, but they bubble up organically. They're spray, not wave. And Ben says, Oh, but apparently this guy, this reviewer had disdain for Knausgaard's section about Hitler in volume six, which to Ben's oh. mind contains the best writing of the series. I don't want to hear about and I, I, I don't, I'm not open to that kind of critique. You're not open to that? Well, I haven't read, I haven't, I should just read the Hitler, um, the Hitler section. I know, we need to get to that. When in doubt, skip ahead to Hitler. Yeah. But, but I do think that the, whatever this reviewer, this quote, it says, his crucial gift is for sweeping low over the humble details of life. I do think that's absolutely correct. I do not think Kanausgaard is very good at cultural criticism. I don't know. He's just too digressive and too... Is that what he's up to in this new collection? What yeah, is it? it's, what a, it it's an essay. It's a Gia Tolentino style essay collection. Oh, that's revolting. Yeah. I thought it might have been one of his, the next segment of his seasonal quartet or whatever. Oh, uh, Although he does have a novel coming here. I think his, his most recent novel did already come out in Norway. but it did. Honestly, he should have just gone silent post my struggle. What's he? I know. There's nothing left to say. There's not him. really much. And people, I have seen critics speculate that. So maybe someone in The Guardian said, yeah, there's, he really hasn't done anything. I mean... <laughs> his project he, was finished with my struggle. He had his, like, effusive, explosive moment. Yeah. And now he should just coast on that wave. Yeah. On that spray, whatever the critic called it. I mean, he already wrote more than most writers produce in a lifetime, that's a good point. He can chill. He can chill for a little and bit. And it's actually of high quality artistic yeah. values. So and he should he should just do the rounds. Come on our pod. <laughs> Come on, Joe Rogan. Come on our Go pod. Go on Joe Rogan. You know? I mean, the problem is we need to kind of we need to produce like at least a dozen or so more episodes before we get to Kanazgard himself. Because it's that true. Would, yeah, you have to have a buildup. We need to edge. We need to definitely edge a little more. I mean, we're not even edging yet. We're not even... We're not even close to the edge. We're still flaccid, basically, yeah, which is are. fine. I mean, I prefer it that way. I know. Um, <laughs> so that's what listener Ben had to say. And I, I do think... I think that's completely legitimate what that critic said about... Although... Nausgaard not could, being good at cultural criticism. We probably should get a... I probably should get a copy of this book. Yeah, I don't think his... 
Well, apparently the only good essay in the book is the one that is a manifesto against Sweden. That's the titular essay. Oh, of course. That doesn't yeah. surprise me. Because he shines on that topic. I mean, uh, that's his real that's his real raison d'etre, as they say on France, you know? That's yeah. his that was actually the driving force of my struggle. He, he didn't mean to write about his father or Yeah, few else. people realize that that the the actual theme of my struggle is And it was an invective against Sweden that just yeah. sort of kind of gathered too much weight along the way. Um, that's okay. my grand Another theory. listener messaged me. Oh, this was a while ago. Uh, and this is a listener who is actually Norwegian. This person is approach mirrorish. Now, I don't know much about Norwegian names, but I'm guessing that that is an online alias and not a Norwegian name. Okay. So this person says, I just wanted to say I appreciate the Our Struggle podcast. It's funny to hear a non-Norwegian take on Knausgård since it's so different from the Norwegian and Swedish take on him. Knausgård was so big here in the late 00s slash early 10s that a takedown industry of him and my struggle started popping up. The funniest was Knausgård Coden, in parentheses, the Knausgård Code thing, which was the pamphlet that went into depth how much of a charlatan he was. So first of all, it's very funny to me that there was a pamphlet going around. Like, That's brilliant. Like, was witnesses just at, outside the subway, like, please, t- please take this. Please we should bring back pamphleteering culture. Yeah, I really, I really like that. I really hope that every... I, I kind of makes me people are just leaving it on people's dashboards in their cars (laughs) it makes me feel melancholic because can you picture a writer of narrative prose achieving that eminence or even that kind of level of critique in america it just it just wouldn't happen that's a good point it is kind of cool that they have national proselytizing against a writer yeah just casting aspersions yeah at a writer Ooh, i love casting aspersions maybe it was more than aspersions it was just throwing shit at him but still yeah who what writer gets attacked even noticed so much is uh, noticed in america that's a good point when's when's the last time america had a truly i mean we're still basically there's writer. basically still people just ranting about david foster ross on twitter that's basically still the status of, of american that what people are ranting about on twitter i don't know um, i don't go on there but i see it yeah. I, I see off offshoots i see chips wood chips I mean, I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. But I guess most of the dis- most of the discourse happens on on the literary Twitter, which I avoid like like the plague. So, I I have to preserve what my wellness. <sighs> what were we talking about? His new collection. What is it called? This new collection. It's called In the Land of the Cyclops. So it's like he's doing an Odysseus. He's doing a. Well, I believe Sweden is the Cyclops. A Ulysses thing. Uh, I don't know. I'd have to read it. Honestly, maybe I will just buy it and read the first essay so we can talk time because I'm kind of curious to read it. He probably, he's just spinning his wheels at this point. It's too easy. There's yeah. no resistance. Yeah, he does need resistance. He needs a struggle. This this is like oh. facile. This is facile. and He needs teeth. He needs teeth. He needs someone to bite him. Yeah, he does. Where is he these days? In London? He's in London with his latest wife and baby. <laughs> oh, he has a new, he has a new child? Tenth child, yeah. Tenth? No, I don't know. But he has a lot of talk them. Of, he's, talk about prolific. Yeah. That's an inspiration, you know. Is that an inspiration? To write that many books and have that many 
what's the you word? You also want to procreate prolifically, Drew? I didn't know that was an ambition. Um, well, maybe it's a function of narcissism. No, I don't think so. I don't think I share that, but I respect it. I admire it. You admire it? I admire that, that prolific breeding. Um, okay, this is, so approach mirrorish. They also translate. Approach mirrorish? Approach, that's their name. Or what I'm guess, as I said, I'm guessing their what is their alias because with right. the knowledge of their names, I don't think that is a typical Norwegian. So here he translates. This is from the Knausgard Coden, the Knausgard Code, which is again the pamphlet that was distributed uh, at subways and in parking lots around Oslo. So it says the, dis- the discussion around my struggle have been colored by either worship or hatred, but there have been few attempts to interpret the work itself. This is because everything about Knausgaard and my struggle is fundamentally ambiguous. This ambiguity manifests in three different ways. The genre of the work itself is hard to define. My struggle shifts from autobiography to novel. Knausgaard himself as a writer and a subject is also ambiguous. He shifts schizophrenically between self-loathing and megalomania. And at last, the reader's reception is colored by biographical gossip, aesthetic rapture, and psychological identification. My struggle's confessional nature serves as a ploy to justify and preserve the qualities Knausgaard says he hates most about himself. He makes his readers complicit in his behaviors by confessing to them, but not changing anything about his behavior, because he has cleansed his mind by confessing and confessing alone. Knausgaard gives a pre-modern explanation for the problems of modernity through the description of his despotic father. An easy answer, something a majority can identify with, but it's ultimately an old answer to new problems. That's why my struggle stinks of mothballs that's the conclusion no i think this is just like a, a very short excerpt from the from this i mean i love the idea of some crank skulking around stockholm or oslo or whatever like throwing out pamphlets i know that's beautiful what if it was knausgaard in himself <laughs> it was knausgaard himself yeah <laughs> Could be. That would be. That would be an some amazing performance art. Actually, that'd be brilliant. Uh, yeah, a brilliant stun. But yeah, I don't know. I think I don't know. Do you think Knausgaard is kind of trying to uh, not? What is the word? Not vindicate himself, but uh, that just sounds like a crude critique of all so-called confessional literature, which I suppose isn't yeah. entirely misplaced, but it's sort of uh, redundant at this point. Doesn't seem very interesting to me, and I don't even think. Kinazgard, he's not luxuriously confessional in the manner of, you know, be second rate memoirists or whatever. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, Again, I don't think he's vastly interested in himself like a lot of other memoirists are, which sounds odd to say, but I really don't think he, it's, I don't really think my struggle is an exploration of the self, of his specific self, so much as an exploration of what it is to live. You know, so what is this? I don't know. I haven't read enough of this pamphlet, but this pamphlet seems to suggest that Knausgaard should. The Knausgaard Coden. Knausgaard's writing is like inherently insufficient because he's not actually repairing his life. He's merely confessing himself, Mm. but he's a writer. So. Yeah, no, he's a writer. He's not a project politician Um, or anything. And as for the charge, it's somehow outmoded or antiquated because he's blaming his father i mean that that just seems like a crude reduction of the book i don't i don't even i don't feel like he's simply doing a project of um blame Uh, i don't know this this just seems like a crude 
a very crude yeah, reading. Yeah, no, of the it book. does. I mean, it's not like I don't think they're completely unfounded critiques, but I think they don't really hold up to as they I say mean, closer scrutiny. You could throw that at any confession, seemingly ostensibly confessional family memoir, probably in the world. Uh, yeah. Oh, he's not. He's just a narcissist who wants to thinks that by speaking about his life, he has somehow repaired himself and in the end he's simply blaming his parents that strikes me as unoriginal but uh I, the person i mean he's right about the ambiguity yeah but that that to me is a positive attribute of the book that's interesting yeah well anyway thanks to approach mirish for writing in and translating that for us um thank you yeah thank you and thank you for listening to our podcast yeah i'm happy that we have a dedicated fan base in norway itself lately our listenership has been in germany hmm what do we, we make a of spike that? in germany suspiciously that is suspicious i don't know if i feel happy what's going relieved. on there i mean i would love it. we should in fact i i'm already working at the plans but post covid we're gonna do a live show in berlin that's true yeah we're gonna do a live show for an audience of the maybe I'm guessing nine to 12 people who listen to our podcast in Germany, not all of whom necessarily live in Berlin. Yeah. You could drum up, we could drum up some PR and drum up some PR. Well, we can hand out pamphlets on the street beforehand. Yeah. Like two, yeah. two American cranks. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. We may as well get into, so we decided this episode since we don't have a guest because no one famous enough uh, has proposed themselves to us. And I have not done really any work in procuring guests except for messaging a few people who have not responded to me. So I was thinking, so Drew, can you give a quick summary of the action of what happened the last time we talked in this, about this book? I think we I think we made it to about that strange incident where the father becomes an alcoholic, essentially. No. No? That's way later in the book. I think we talked about it, but we like in terms of chronologically, we have not gotten there yet. Oh, I mean, I don't think we even made it past the initial sighting of Jesus in the ocean. Yeah, I think that was the last thing we talked about. We're getting through this pretty slowly. And and the sandwiches. He the makes sandwiches, famously. An you know, sandwich. as I was texting you earlier, I had a tuna melt for lunch today, which I sent That's you. That's beautiful. It was. Delicious. I really, I'm yeah. on duty this weekend, so I can't, I can't nip out to the store. But I'm really craving yeah. a tuna melt right now, and I would it's, die. For- it was excellent. I'm not gonna lie. Um, so you it had was a little perfectly pick- browned, you know, because it's you have to have a toaster oven to make one. Ne- oh it. yeah, you need. Yeah. You know. But as I was eating it, I was thinking to myself, you know, the Norwegians seem to really love eating cheese on a slice of bread, mm-hmm. and they seem to love eating fish on a slice of bread. But do they eat cheese and fish on a slice of bread? Have they jumped to that next bridge, to that next stage? Something always know. seems vaguely not kosher about cheese and fish, but I don't know why. I, I enjoy the, the combination. Yeah, it's great. I mean, our ancestors Especially. invented schmear with locks. That's true. I, that's true. That's weird that, that, that the, I mean, the schmear with locks, that's essentially like a, a, a cousin of all the Norwegian sandwiches, right? It's true. It's true. Yeah. I mean, Eastern Europe, Northern Europe, it's all rife with like fish products and cheese yeah. products. I mean, that's what they live on. Yeah. But what I want to know, I guess if you're one of our Scando listeners, can you tell us, have they, have they innovated far enough 
in the sandwich uh, space in terms of like combining the fish with the cheese? Because it seems like those two things are usually separate in your cuisine. And also the so, tuna melt, the tuna melt sort of the preserve of like American diner culture. Like it feels true. like a 50s thing. It does. It I, feels very like cafeteria. Yeah. Like, I don't know, like the same era in which you'd have an ice box, whatever that is. Mm. You know, maybe you'd I have a like bread slicer. A tuna melt with like a chocolate malt. Yes, yes. You have a nice syrupy chocolate malt. And uh, yeah. And, and then like smoke a cigarette in the kitchen. Yes. That's my dream. Yeah. <laughs> that's the hour struggle. That's right the hour struggle. Official hour struggle branded lunch. <laughs> <laughs> actually, actually, though, we will do a, a Twitch mukbang of a tuna melts with a with live tuna stream melts. tuna melts and cigarettes. Yeah. Yep, and then we'll also be reading from the book. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yep, that's gonna be a barn burner. That's um, our first live stream. That's our first live stream for Breaking. our tens and tens of listeners. Um, Here, what doing? actually, I think our last episode, taking the K pill, featuring our friend James Griffiths, got almost a hundred. Yeah, I had congratulations a, I to us. A friend of mine said he listened to. He said, "You know, I finally listened to your podcast, and it was actually pretty good." Oh my god! Thank you so much, Drew's friend. He, but he said it seemed that when we ran out of ideas, you just made recourse to mocking me for arbitrary. <laughs> but nice. I said, "Well, what's wrong with that?" That's, that's... He was mocking you for what? No, he said that you were mocking me when you when we ran out of things to say. Oh, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, he's figured out the formula. <laughs> that's the shtick, man. Yeah. Um. Yeah. My uh. My mom and dad listened to it religiously. Really? I think my mom is a little scandalized by it, but she, uh, she for some reason, she said she found it absolutely hilarious when you randomly went into French when you tried to say French words. I don't remember. I don't even remember doing that. You were saying something about the poulet. Oh. I thought that was very funny. Also. A lot of my funniest bits, I, I have an amnesia about them. I don't. I don't remember them. Well, I think you were pretty well into a bottle of the Federalist. Oh, that's still here. By oh the yeah, way. I also got an email from Peter, and he said you should make sure Drew keeps drinking the Federalist. Well, actually, I, <laughs> because it was know, his best episode yet. I I hate to say it, but this I'm doing a dry January. Oh, are you? Do- I knew you would be doing dry January. You knew I would. <laughs> I, I somehow knew. But that's just, it's because it's the mark of somebody who drinks too much. So well, you exactly, just assume. Yeah, those, those types those, of people do a dry I don't need to do that because I don't drink right. that much. Yeah, I'm on the wagon. I had, I had, a, I had a, rough, uh, a rough spell at the end of the mo- last month. So mm. I had to dry out and, you know, re- refresh the liver. But I have the bottle here as a souvenir of that wonderful episode. And I, I'm that thinking was, maybe, that I'll, was great. maybe I'll make it into a candle. You know how people do that? Oh. <laughs> Although I think that would burn down this apartment because there's so much shit lying about that it would immediately lead yeah. to the deaths of multiple people. You win some, you lose some. Yeah. Uh, what were we talking about? Oh, yeah, we were talking, we got on a diversion about tuna melts and sandwiches. Oh, right, because we were recapping the sandwich episode of last time. Mm. And so in this one, we're moving on. Uh, and we're going to, because, so, Knausgaard, yeah, he tells the story about Jesus and Sea, and the, uh, dad's sledgehammer, and, of course, the four sandwiches of the apocalypse, and then he kind of flashes forward to his current life, and he does, you know, it's the little, 
paragraph. Is that called a paragraph break or a line break when they do that? Paragraph break? Paragraph break? I mean, Are paragraph breaks cheesy? Are they corny? Well, actually, this is something that Wood sort of discusses that we may have talked about that Canarsgaard's fond of an almost like childish type of writing uh, yeah. with those breaks like out of nowhere that say like, why was he doing that? <laughs> I do Wait. think that this paragraph break is appropriate and that it is like a hard break what from page are we, what, past which, to the which, present. Which, I don't know. I read it on my Kindle Fire, sponsor of the pod. So oh, that's that's heretical. Okay, I well, have you my know my signs. eyes don't work very well and I need the special 200% font. I bet Knausgaard himself didn't sign your Kindle Pyre fire. You're, you're absolutely right about that, Drew. Knausgaard has never signed sponsor. Can you believe that Knausgaard's hand has actually graced this book? It has. It has indeed. That's not all that graced, let me tell you. <laughs> Wait, say more about that. What, what else did it grace, Drew? Tell us. Don't mince words. Um, my heart. I don't know. I, no, I've never heart? touched Kanazgar's never touched me. This book was a, was gifted to me, so I, I myself have never laid eyes on him. He says, so there's the paragraph break, and he says, as I sit here writing this, I recognize that more than 30 years have passed. In the window before me, I can vaguely make out the reflection of my face. Apart from one eye, which is glistening, and the area immediately beneath, which dimly reflects a little light, the whole of the left side is in shadow. Two deep furrows divide my forehead. One deep furrow intersects each cheek. And with the eyes staring and serious... In the corners of the mouth drooping, it is impossible not, con- not to consider this face gloomy. What has engraved itself in my face? The line break. Paragraph break again. Today is the 27th of February. The time is 11.43 p.m. I, Karl Uwe Knausgård, was born in December 1968, and at the time of writing, I am 39 years old. I have three children, Vanya, Heidi, and John, and I'm in my second marriage to Linda Bostrom Knausgård. Well, that should be updated in newer editions to say that. He's now on his third marriage and now has several more children. I think I feel like we've actually already talked about this a little bit. So. Um, oh, this is where he talks about his drinking. Drew, this is relevant to you. Okay. He says, uh, apart from some parents of the children at Vanya and Heidi's nursery, we do not know anyone here. This is not a loss at any rate, not for me. I don't get anything out of socializing anyway. I never say what I really think, what I really mean, but always more or less agree with whomever I am talking to at the time. Pretend that what they say is of interest to me, except when I am drinking, in which case, more often than not, I go too far the other way and wake up to the fear of having overstepped the mark. This has become more pronounced over the years and can now last for weeks. When I drink, I also have blackouts and completely lose control of my actions, which are generally desperate and stupid, but also on occasion desperate and dangerous. I'm going to put in parentheses there, such as slashing your face multiple times. That is why I no longer drink. I do not want anyone to get close to me. I do not want anyone to see me. And this is the way things have developed. No one gets close and no one sees me. This is what must have engraved itself on my face. This is what must have made it so stiff and mask-like and almost impossible to associate with myself whenever I happen to catch a glimpse of it in a shop window. It is an interesting image because of course he kind of engraved or mutilated his own face when he was in the drunk moment. I almost feel like it's a little dishonest to not mention that he has not once but twice slashed his own face. Yeah. I mean, I wonder what, if there's a connection between like the immoderate self-revelation of his drinking and the immoderate seeming self-revelation of the writing of this book. Mm. I mean, Say more about that. Well, maybe it's too easy an insight, but 
he claims that he never that he's he goes about maintaining an artificial self but then he is in a sense i don't know if he's merely exposing himself in these books but he is kind of revealing his his story i mean he is working out himself like these books don't feel like a an artificial performance although of course they still have artifice but yeah it's, maybe it's odd i mean i suppose it's not an entirely unknown paradox for a writer to wear a mask in public and then you know reveal himself or work through himself in the in the, in the work in the books no i think it's i think it's really common i was just i've been listening to the um audiobook of john le carré's memoir which is mm. excellent highly recommend it's read by the man himself oh really he has this amazing like you know british upper class accent yeah. that like doesn't really exist anymore because he read right. it when he was like 85 he just died um yeah. and he says that he really hated interviews and um what the fuck was i just gonna say about because he had to perform a sort of self and wear a mask yeah, so he just issued them entirely at some point because he felt that he didn't really have anything to say. Like what it was, what everything he had to say was in his writing, I guess. There was something else I was going to say about that. I forget it now. I kind of get pissed at these artists when they drivel on about hating interviews. I, it's a, sort of a pet peeve of mine. Yeah. It's like, hey, I would, I would give my left foot to get interviewed. Fuck off. Yeah, but maybe if you're ever actually successful, you're not want to do interviews anymore. Oh, I've already... When I walk around, I pretend that Terry Gross is interviewing me, and I, I just—I'm <laughs> serious. I've been doing this since high school. I've been preparing since high school, if not before. For Terry Gross, specifically for the interview with Terry Gross. Well, you know, I'm sort of done with her now, but I, essentially, she is the the main kind of avatar of interviewers that I have in my head. Right. So I, I listen to her, and I, I prepared my responses. Um, okay. Of course, I'd probably get in front of her and collapse, but I, I yeah. know, I have a lot of lines prepared for terry can you could you try test one of them out right now i'm just curious well i have this whole bit about how i was prepared for writing as some kids were prepared for a life in tennis and limp as, as the tennis olympians okay um wait okay so pretend i'm terry gross i'm gonna say andrew what does she sound like andrew, i don't know uh, your novel is full of fascinating it's about what it's like to project French Canadian face to the world, but internally feel the struggle of your American identity. How did you dramatize that in your novel? Lena, you know, somewhere along the way, I just I became sort of ashamed of this luxurious young writer's life I was leading. You know, going uh, I took part in these writing summer camps as as a youth. You know, I was. It was ridiculously comfortable, and I realized that in order to sort of gain some measure of, of rugged authenticity, I would have to develop a new self. So I chose a Quebecois self for my new adventure in, in prose. Now, is that why you also became gay and started dating some guy you met on Instagram? You know, that was a sort of spontaneous excursion along the way, because I try to remain flexible. You know, it's like, with your work, if you have an overdetermined... No, you're, you're 100% homosexual is, is what I've heard and what is the <laughs> rumor around town, actually. You're not well, interested in women. Remotely. Well, I won't, I won't distort whatever narrative is, is being... You are the, the gayest gay man who, to ever walk the earth, is, you know, or at least that's what I hear from my colleagues at... Um, 
Well, if I weren't gay, I probably wouldn't have been offered this interview on NPR. So that's part of the reason why I had to go gay, just to get on NPR. They don't let straight men on NPR. No, I love gay NPR. Okay, well, that was. thank you for coming, Drew. And uh, uh, his book comes out. It's called The The Gay Kibakwa. You should listen to Terry Gross's interview with Keith Richards when he repeatedly calls her baby. That's awesome. <laughs> it's it's really brilliant. But you can tell that even she like just lets her guard down and goes with it because Keith Richards yeah. is calling her baby. So what is she going to do? Complain? Yeah, what are you going to do? It's fucking brilliant. So. That's, that rocks. And actually, there's a funny interview with Philip Roth, too, where for some reason, Terry Gross keeps coming back to this sort of ridiculously Rothian scene of a dude like jerking off and like coming on a windowsill and Philip Roth, Philip Roth pauses that happens says, in succession did you ever watch that show I have not watched I wonder that if show. they stole that from Roth they probably did and then Philip Roth pauses and says Terry uh, you seem really fixated on this one scene <laughs> <laughs> and she's like kind of abashed but <laughs> so I studied I studied how to how to appeal to Terry Gross although she's probably gonna she's probably gonna bite the dust before my time comes yeah she's getting up there she's years uh, yeah I I don't know but anyway I I would I I have something interesting to say about John Le Carre's memoir but I cannot remember it at all now you know I god damn it I've never really made it through a John Le Carre book I think I love him I think I tried to read it when I was a little too young. Yeah. Because I thought it was like spies and it would be involving. He writes like the most boring spy books possible. Right. No, I know that's his whole stick. There's like, like no action. The Cold War was actually just grim, gray, and bureaucratic. But yeah. I can respect that. I just, um, too many other things on my plate. Fair enough. So we were talking about uh, Canals Garden, Sweden, and looking at his own face in the window. Oh, and then he does this whole thing about the only thing that does not age in the face is the eyes. They are no less bright the day we die as the day we are born. The blood vessels in them may burst, admittedly, and the corneas may be dulled, but the light in them never changes. And that's kind of a callback to the beginning. I don't even, yeah, I was thinking about this. I guess one of the questions we've, we've often asked is, do those essays are are they do they seem sort of forced? I, I don't think they do because they seem part of the same project. I mean, I suppose just on a very simple level, like he's interpreting his other artists' displays of self um, and how they kind of reflect or refract in inside of him, but they don't seem frivolous to me. I mean, it's funny because I guess the point the I don't know if this is true because I haven't read the new book, but it mm-hmm. seems like when his essays are connected to the main stem of his, let's just call it the novel, even though it's not the novel, my struggle, they kind of retain a certain urgency, but when they're mm, disconnected, okay. when they're disconnected, they feel like the kind of frivolous genre that he might re- otherwise reject outside of his large personal project, my struggle. Right. But well, I don't because know the essays in the novel are not quite essays, I would say. They're not essays they're in not, that they have a thesis not. and they, they address you know, it point by point, they're fragments of essays, which is something I think yeah. that comes more naturally to him. I mean, they're kind of just watching a mind react. Um, yeah. So I, they don't feel overdetermined. I, I can't even picture him writing these cultural critique essays that it seems kind of sad. I, it, yeah, it's just not, 
Well, first of all, I think just at this very moment, cultural critique is incredibly played out. And I mean, every other what's it called when land gets over uh, over farmed? The soil editing out this part. The land has been exhausted, or the soil Mm. has been sure. The soil is no longer fertile. It's been farmed so intensively that there is nothing left there for yeah, too much tillage. We need to just leave it alone for like at least 10 years let it lie fallow let it lie fallow yeah i mean right now it's funny though yeah because now there's such a there's basically a on-demand economy of cultural critique at your fingertips at every 30 seconds it's it's just maddening it sucks it really does suck so yeah i think that's one reason it's just because that genre is so fucking played out right now and then the second is that i don't think he's naturally good at cultural critique because i don't think he really has fully formed opinions on anything from mm-hmm. what I've read of him, except Sweden, except, except Sweden. the nation of Sweden and Swedish culture. That's not his style. He's not surgical. You have to, if you're going to be a really good cultural critic, you have to be surgical and like really like brutal and coherent, which is not really what he is. Uh, okay. So then this gets to his kids, which I want to talk about, talks about when his children were born. And I, it's this is of course very interesting to me as I uh, am employed professionally as a as a babysitter, oh, yeah. uh, which is in a way, you know, like being a subcontractor parent. So the stuff about the kids is so his children. He has very young children, and he has a theme here in how the children exhaust him, and he hates them a lot of the time. Which again, shades of Louis C.K. here in Canalsgard. I've always thought of him as the the Louis C.K. of of literature personally. well that gets that gets us back to yeah. he, Louis C.K. that he doesn't have a, a phallic name but he still exposed himself that's a good point hmm. although there's something a little phallic about Louis I don't know yeah. why I, I'm not surprised I mean I'm not surprised he whipped it out for so many reasons but that would be an interesting uh we could do a whole episode uh Louis C.K. meets Canalsgaard well I feel like there's a lot of parallels there so there are them both having young daughters whom they hate deeply uh, no, I mean, they're, and especially the time. because they also kind of, I don't know Louis C.K. C. C. <laughs> Louis C.K.'s cor- corpus as well, but it seems that they're both kind of these essays um, that use the motif of a kind of sitcom dad, but they explode. Yes, yes, exactly. They're kind of essays into the sitcom dad self. Yeah, damn. Um, That's actually a very good point. So we're on to something. Uh, yeah, I don't think they're as far from each other as they appear. Yeah. Or in fact, I think they're of a piece, you know, and I think there could be a fertile kind of essay to brew from that. I don't know. Yeah. And they're both these like men who have some kind of strong artistic passion, but also feel constantly emasculated. Right. And uh, horny, but not willing to their wives. Or actually, I don't know if that's true about Lazy Gay, but. There's a there's at least like kind of the the ideal of of the kind of wholesome sitcom dad against which they struggle because I think they want to be cool leather jacket guys. And then there's also this other thing of that they're involved in um, not only exposing but kind of transforming their life into this art this art project. Yes, you know, yes. Show. And even like Louis show how I don't even know much about it, but it's like aren't the performances kind of intertwined with the life? Yes, yes. So, I mean, Kanazgard, that's not such an original device at this point, but Kanazgard does something similar wherein 
we see the life alongside the writing. So that actually just like lends in, they blend into each other. It becomes impossible to kind of disentangle yeah. the life from the writing of the life or the book from uh, everything that constitutes the book. Um, and it's also, I think they're very, well, we'll get to this in a second. I think they're maybe one of the only artists to kind of seriously uh, broach the question in public of feeling that you your children are a burden sometimes which is still mm. kind of socially unacceptable to to talk about are they, they're both kind of like i guess they're both on some very superficial level like grappling with gen x dad anxiety yes, yes right so he says as i write he's talking about his daughter um id he says as i write i am filled with tenderness for her, but this is on paper in reality when it really counts and it is standing there in front of me so early in the morning that the streets outside are still and not a sound could be heard in the house she Rearing to start a new day, I summoning the will to get to my feet, putting on yesterday's clothes and following her into the kitchen, where the promised blueberry-flavored milk and sugar-free muesli await her. That is, I'm a dig at Sweden. It is not tenderness I feel. And if she goes beyond my limits, such as when she pesters and pesters me for a film or tries to get into my room where John is asleep, in short, every time she refuses to take no for an answer but drags things out ad infinitum, it is not uncommon for my irritation to mutate into anger. And when I then speak harshly to her and her tears flow and she bows her head and slinks off with some shoulders, I feel it serves her right. I think the frustration with them and like kind of the lack of generosity we have in dealing with them is not still, it's like one of the few subjects that you really still can't broach publicly, especially for women, I think. I think with, with these guys too, it's because they were maybe one of the first generations that a more intimate role of fatherhood was sort of foisted upon yes, them. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I think they want, maybe, maybe not desperately, but they have a they have a real desire to, you know, perform that role. Not only perform it, but authentically embody it. But they're not free from these uh, reservations and these annoy. It goes beyond annoyances. I mean, yeah. Well, you know, they're basically being dragged down. They can't be cowboys like you used to do. Like, you know, John Le Carre, he just fucked off and went to Palestine or the Congo, just left right. his family behind. And you could just do that. He would just go on research trips to South Asia or wherever the fuck, like really dangerous war zones. And you could just do that. Yeah. Like, There's no expectation that you would be there half the time and take care of half the work. Because, you know, if you were of that age, your wife probably didn't work. And so, yeah, but these enlightened families, there's kind of this, resentment that still hasn't quietly been quite been totally um and what is it i think it's in this book where he talks about rolling out of the house like just completely frenzied with the double stroller and the diaper bags and this japanese tourist is just taking a picture of him (laughs) he's just like the model he says i'm taking a picture of the new scandinavian man yeah i mean no that's kind of like the if you reduce my struggle to a sitcom it is like the state of the male genius writers today is at like playtime with his daughter yes. and like walking around like laden with diapers you know that, i mean that's like the extremely horny for the children's dance instructor <laughs> i mean that's the that's like if you reduce kanazgard to like his comic shtick what it would yeah. look like and i kind of like doing that uh, i would love i would love to see the sitcom adaptation of <laughs> imagine it with completely like a, literal with completely a laugh literal, yeah the laugh track just Takes all the incidents in the book, but takes away any contemplation, <laughs> metafiction, anything. It would be funny that instead of like his, his essay, essayistic moments on art, you just see him like staring into a painting for. 
Yeah, they're just in early. It's early. He's just uh, staring, and there's like a laugh track to it as he like watches <laughs> a Charlie Chaplin. It's just a recurring <laughs> joke. Uh, and then we were talking about. Oh, I was talking about. Okay, so this is the section actually that I think sold me when I first read this almost a year ago. That completely sold me on Knausgard, like where I was like, "This is it for me." And it's where he's talking about the role his children play in his life, uh, and the extent to which they can and cannot provide him with meaning why should the fact that i am a writer mean our strollers all look like junk we found on a junk heap why should the fact that i am a writer exclude me from the world why should the fact that i am a writer mean i turn up at the nursery with crazed eyes and a face stiffened into a mask of frustration why should the fact that i am a writer mean that our children do their utmost to get their own way whatever the consequences where does all the mess in our lives come from I know I can change all this. I know we too can become that kind of family. Then I would have to want it, in which case life would have to revolve around nothing else. And that is not what I want. I do everything I have to do for the family. That is my duty. The only thing I have learned from life is to endure it, never to question it, and to burn up the longing generated by this in writing. I mean, that's kind of dark. And he, he makes it more explicit uh, in a second here. He says, the question of happiness is banal, but the question that follows is not the question of meaning. When I look at a beautiful painting, I have tears in my eyes, but not when I look at my children. That does not mean I do not love them because I do with all my heart. It simply means that the meaning they produce is not sufficient to fulfill a whole life. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that he says, it makes me think again of this connection that I'm trying to make between the drinking and the writing because the drinking sort of frees him even if it's in a kind of highly limited way, but and pushes him to disfigure him, his face. Mm-hmm. And then writing is sort of perhaps a kind of self-destructive burning up of his experience. Oh, yeah, it's a burning up of excess. And yeah. it's the only way he can accommodate himself to this otherwise like cucked family lifestyle. Um, but first of all, I think the fact, oh, fuck. Um, the fact that he just admits that his children are not enough to they don't provide enough meaning for a whole life is like pretty intense i mean that's when it really hit me that this was like the real shit i think when i was and also i read this when i had just accidentally moved back to america forever from china and i you know my writing career was obviously going to shit and i didn't have a job and i was like i really do not know what to do with my life where is this going uh, right. And where can I find meaning? Because in China, in the challenge, right, in the struggle of, of figuring things out there, I did find meaning. And I was like, well, what is my next struggle going to be? I still want to write. And so I think him being like the only thing that essentially I will not be happy and I will not be content unless I can write and the kids are just not enough is, I think, very profound. And also something that I think would be, is still pretty unacceptable to admit. Because I think the traditional notion is that children and family do provide enough meaning to fill a whole life, especially for women. But, you know, even if you feel that way, you're not supposed to admit it. Yeah, I think that is, as pro- uh, yeah, probably even more of a burning question for women writers that hasn't, I mean, it's interesting that Kanazgard's sort of kind of living out this question that yeah that many women writers have dealt with probably probably more silently for like generations but he certainly 
I mean, that's where that's why again, like where the this kind of sitcom setup almost does apply to him that he that he feels that these this kind of uh, maybe is his family simply you know bourgeois paraphernalia. We know that not to be true. It's weird that like right, but the thing is, his family figures so not even prominently like they are the a text of his text. So. But they are ultimately, I think the thing is they are subordinated to the major theme, which is, I think, I guess, writing itself or the attempt to achieve authenticity or an authentic reflection of life through writing. Like his father's privacy, of course, and this is why his uncle got mad at him, is subordinated to the project of being able to convey a long, uh, drawn out, often banal sometimes horrendous task of cleaning out that house and writing, which is an amazing achievement. And for that, he sacrifices, you know, the lived reality of all these other people in his family. And I, I think, mean, I mean, yeah. I, I would imagine that's partly why he and Linda got divorced. I wouldn't want to be my life to be subordinated to my husband's personal project. I mean, that's very I mean, it's strange too that I know I sort of, I don't know why I'm fixating on this parallel between drinking and writing, but his father threw away his bourgeois his comfortable bourgeois family life yes, for, a, yeah. for a career in drink essentially i mean like it was almost yeah. like an artistic project right he he and his mother that's an interesting drank, yeah thought drank them i mean it was like we've taught we've remarked on this before how it wasn't this kind of chronic alcoholism that we're probably more familiar with but at least at least in as we see it in this in my struggle the father made a very intentional choice to ruin his life through drink yeah he was like this is my thing now exactly you know some people get into woodworking some people get into philately <laughs> he became an alco- a very prolific alcoholic he became a prolific alcoholic and almost and it's funny that then the project of this book is this sort of you know an excavation and then a what's the word a cleaning up but not we should be careful to say not like a sanitization thereof but more of like a messy excavation because even when they're cleaning there it's it's kind of a grotesque grim scene obviously oh yeah um i'm just trying to find a parallel between the father's drinking project and and kanazgar's writing project uh which they seem equally immoderate trying to well, first of all, I think it's the, I think there is something paradigmatically male about it, although I also feel yeah. that way, but sometimes, but I think there's this idea that men can either, we were talking about men going their own way last time, not, <laughs> not men going their own way, but uh, essentially right. in history or for the past 200 years, men, you know, the family was something you had, but like yeah. you in Mad Men, right? He's, Don Draper is doing his own thing. He's you know, pursuing his whatever and having plenty of affairs and the family's kind of just a, an accessory. And I think there has been this idea for a long time that men should be able to pursue whatever and the, the family Truly. just go along with it and that men are, you know, entitled to have this uh, lifelong journey of self-realization uh, even when they have responsibilities. Uh, and that is something that I think has started, you know, with the enlightened man or, you know, has started to fade that possibility. And yeah, and we saw Knauskar's father pushing back on that by abandoning it and making his life about himself again uh, through <laughs> this brutal alcoholism. Yeah. Uh, 
But I think the interesting thing is we see, I think with like these kind of domesticated men, you see some efforts at, you know, reclaiming their own life through like some intense hobby, right? Like you hear about all these dads getting into like restoring right. classic cars or getting really into woodworking or uh, what are other yeah. stereotypical urban hobbies? Like Basic, they're both, basically escaping yeah. into autism. Escaping it, yes. Testosterone autism as the author of Drag Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead uh, put it. Is they, that really? They, they, yeah, yeah. She put it. Uh, it's this Polish author. It was very funny. Um, but they escape into some hobby that makes them or is supposed to like reconnect them. You know, either yeah, it's like or some lifelong interest. That's uh, why we even call it the man the man cave, right? Yeah, that's the man cave, man right? Cave. They develop. They you know they develop or they build some kind of man cave, and that's <laughs> but it's always that man cave will always be a parody of what they could actually have been doing a hundred years ago which is going out in colonial India or whatever and shooting tigers and, you know, writing their memoirs or doing some kind of crazy thing, which you could do. I mean, so, I have to be quite honest that I sometimes feel a kind of jealousy of the, of the earlier state of uh, male ego. I do too. I mean, I, I genuinely, especially the older I get, the more I have this question is like, I, my most burning thing is to be a writer, but of course mm -hmm. now that I'm, you know, getting older, I do want to have kids, but I'm like, is it even responsible to have kids if I haven't yet, like, fulfilled my ambition, which has been the thing I've wanted to do my entire life of writing a book and being a successful writer. And especially, you know, I used to travel a lot, and I probably won't be able to travel a lot if I have a kid. Um, that would be pretty irresponsible. And so that, you know, that stage of my life of me doing my own thing, going my own way, if you will, like will definitively come to an end if I have a kid. Um, yeah. No, I mean, I often think that there's simply so much sucks. I can't do until I, I say until, until I write a book, but hopefully there's a whole, you know, career of that, but who the fuck knows? But uh, I guess because I'm a man, you know, I can actually go my own way, but yeah. uh, I'm joking. But I mean, I, I think the tension of, any domestic life and an artistic life is uh yes it's essentially domestic right life. traditionally yeah i mean w w women have had to deal with it much more um you know punishingly but yeah um i guess yeah i mean with ken osgard it's almost as though i mean yeah on a very crude level it's as though he wants to exist as tolstoy exactly in this kind of like this ocean of ego but there he is carting his kids off to daycare or whatever so they're um, sugar-free muesli i mean i don't know why i keep i can't resist the urge to keep reducing uh the book to its its sitcom of male genius but <laughs> well because but it that, is. I mean, there's nothing you can do about it it's a it's just this ever especially with children i mean you cannot pretend that you are living the cowboy lifestyle if you have small children they are the most unsexy, mm -hmm. like most annoying thing to have in your life. Like yeah. they're just pooping all the time. I mean, it's just brutal. I think Kanazgar does capture this kind of like almost this like embarrassment about having to be responsible for these. Like, oh yes, oh yes. These sloppy little humans that are little just ragamuffins. Shitting and yet he keeps having them. 
I know, but that's why. But that's what's weird. Is he? I mean, is that an extension of his ego? Is that what I mean? Because that's another traditional aspect of the male genius, right? Just going around, yeah. fucking spreading their seed. <laughs> spreading their seed. Yeah. I mean, it's almost akin. It's like a shadow project of the book. Like he can't stop. He can't stop coming. <laughs> In text and in these women. I mean, what's going oh, on? Oh, now Drew's on a roll. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Maybe he's reached the end of the line with this fucking essay, a cultural critique collection. Maybe that means yeah. his new kid is going to be like inert. Because. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I do think just this is just my personal advice to him: is stop having children. You have enough. I mean, he's the irony is like in many ways, although he has anxieties about fulfilling this role or aspiring to the role of a traditional male genius, he actually has kind of lived it out. Like he is sort of yeah. doing that. <laughs> and yet he still has these fucking children who are demanding he feed them their muesli. I mean, there are many male writers who writers of great skill who are actually are just have had one wife and have two kids and just live in yeah. the suburbs and drive yeah. their kids to cello lessons and, you know, make love to their wife. Every <laughs> but do you think they could have achieved more if they hadn't? I don't know. I mean, yeah, yeah, then they probably go write boring domestic realism and like yeah. jerk off in the shower. What's that guy? Raymond? Raymond no, Carver? He wrote the sports. Good no, writer. no, he wrote the sports. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, what the fuck is that guy's name? The sports writer by Rich, Richard Ford. Richard Ford, yeah. Uh, <laughs> that guy. Yeah, I mean, our American example of this is 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 Saul Bellow is often invoked as this kind of grandiose male genius who had many wives and many children and yeah. wrote many books. And it was probably like achieved a degree of celebrity that is totally alien to any writer in, in this day and age i mean it's did it's, people it's, write pamphlets about him and hand them out on the subway uh i don't know about that that is astonishing but in a country <laughs> as big as and teeming as america to have achieved by that the level, way i'm completely joking about the handing the pamphlets out on the subway in part i don't know if that happened or not it's just funny to me. oh i actually believe that imagine that <laughs> really believe me? I, no, was I was just dull. making myself laugh thinking about that I'm not sure what our listener meant was like a literal pamphlet you hand out Jehovah's Witness style. I mean, I still think that it was a it was a PR it was a POMO PR device. Well, listen, the most POMO move for Knausgaard at this point would be to star in his own self-titled sitcom about (laughs) raising his kids in Sweden. (laughs) Yes, that is the only move for him. Louis C.K. will produce it. Louis C.K. will produce it. He'll. He'll uh, he'll come out of hiding. They say we need you for one last job. Like, no, <laughs> I've exposed myself too many times. They say no one but you can do this, Louis. You need to produce. I mean, it's interesting too that that it's interesting too that Louis C.K. had this parallel has this parallel life, and of course, what did he get canceled for for exposing himself? Just mm. as Kinnasgard, it, it has exposed himself. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you're on a roll. <laughs> I don't know why synapses I'm, firing. I'm just going the full parallel. This is like English yeah. teacher's brand. I, I think. know. I know. I'm sorry. It's not my normal mode, but uh, I've, been, I've been I've been teaching up a storm. I've been speaking yeah. into the void on Zoom. At least you're responding to me. My students, they don't even turn on their cameras. I have no idea who's Hell there. Yeah. It's, 
That's awful. Uh, I just monologue into the void. I was, I'm losing my head. I mean, I was questioning whether, sometimes I kept checking to see, is my microphone on? It was on. Just no one was re- reacting. <laughs> it's really disorienting. I was thinking with the sitcom, like, you know, it cuts between Louis doing stand-up and then, like, his, his life. Yeah. It'll just be, like, Knausgaard at his desk writing. Right. Yeah, something about Rembrandt, and then the the voiceover will continue as he's but there's like a lot of pratfalls it's scattered with like a lot of like lowbrow humor like him getting punched in the dick by his kids you know slipping on some sugar-free muesli stuff like that yeah i'm I'm so convinced that this is a good idea now it's just be tonally very crude and not have any of the sophistication or nuances of the book um absolutely just straight up like 90s I don't I've not seen enough 90s sitcom to come up with a good would that translate I'm not sure it would translate into the Norwegian mentality very well but who cares well that's part of the point we're trying to go for the most incongruous thing possible it would be funny if we moved him to like New Jersey or something like that (laughs) where would he live like you'd have to live in some hippie place what's the equivalent of Sweden I don't know Berkeley or something like that yeah. yeah he'd have to be in Berkeley we should also get a, a cameo role, cameo roles on this. I would love to cameo in that. Can you imagine just walking on to the set? Yeah. Fuck it, I'll write it. I'll adapt. I'll start. That'll be my new project. I'll, I'm adapting this book into a sitcom. <laughs> no, let's work on it together. Let's work on it. Let's make a whole script on spec for this. Can you imagine? Like, and then that'll let's be our big abandon our novels. Yeah, here we are languishing. <laughs> well, oh my God, we're suffering. I can't have any domestic life till we produce a magnum opus, a novel. <laughs> and then we, we achieve fame by re- re- distilling this into a sitcom. <laughs> Like a two and a half men, yeah. like two broke girls, the Big Bang Theory level sitcom. Two broke girls is actually good. at 8 p.m. on Thursday. Two broke girls is good, I think, wasn't it? Well, I have no idea. I think I liked it. Okay. Well, good. I hope it's our sitcom can be on the level of that. I think the sitcom form, I mean, honestly, it seems like the sitcom form, sitcom form is it's kind of died. I mean, there's not enough of it. Um, that's true. Well, yeah, that's why we're bringing it back. With the help of yeah, executive producer Louis C.K. A resurrection. A resurrection. We can, I bet we can get him so cheap since he's so canceled. Now. I mean, he had a special. He has a, he's living in France, of course, now with Roman Polanski. <laughs> he's living in France. Are you serious? I'm serious. He's really living in France now? Well, he has a French girlfriend. I don't know if that means he's in France. I think Wait, he's in France. He's a French girlfriend. He, he claimed in his new comedy set a few months wow. back. That, He's I got a no French idea. girlfriend. I think he fled. They always go to France when they whip their dick out. That's, That's true, especially if you've done a sex crime. That's definitely the place to be. Yeah, any any sex pest ends up yeah. in France. Nice. Um, you well, know, God bless, God bless France. Liberty, fraternity. I don't know what they do when they're there. They just like limp around and like smoke yeah. wet baguettes and like jerk off and say like, Ooh. Well, that goes without saying. Come on. I feel like the French, though, they're not actually great masturbators. Maybe mm. they are. Well, if you're a French listener, let us know. Hey, do you masturbate in France? <laughs> I know you got a lot of butter and baguettes, but... That's a good point. They have a lot of natural lubricants in their indigenous exactly. cuisines. <laughs> you guys masturbate. I got to... Maybe one of these days I'll get back to... We'll do a live show in Paris. Oh, yeah. Okay. 
I'm just imagining a romantic tour of Europe. We take this show on the road. And then we'd have our final hometown show in, in well, actually, we'd have to be in Stockholm, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and there's like, they're, they're handing out pamphlets against the hour strugglers who've come. <laughs> I would love to have someone make a pamphlet about our podcast. That's when we know we've really made it. Any uh, pamphlets are so cool. I mean, that's what they did, like Thomas Paine and all those. Oh, yeah. Those, those homeboys. I mean, that's the original version of, of tweeting. Exactly. Let's yeah. bring back the pamphlet. I would like that. I would like that. I mean, the tweet, so ephemeral. So ephemeral. I mean, look what happened. You can get can't, you can get deleted in it, at, on anyone's whim. Mm. So true. I'm trying to subvert big tech by going back to pamphleteer mode. <laughs> That's not a bad idea, actually. <laughs> Although I don't like anything you have to that. do any any fold i don't want to fold paper it's like origami it's too hard for me but remember when you folded our chat book i made you do all of it <laughs> i probably fucked it up i'm that so was awesome i'm like disabled with my mechanical uh, abilities yeah same here well that's not why people that's come what... to this podcast it's not to know how to do things like fold paper and you know fix an air conditioner no we already for... talked we already we already discussed and informed about... takes yeah, podcast about a book that no one's talked about in 15 years. Yes, yeah. that's correct. I mean, it's funny that this book already is rather old, isn't it? Yeah. Although... Yeah, well, I think the translation is newer, though, into English. It's more like I mean, that. who's eclipsed this one, though? You know, no one's no one's doing anything like this out there. Like, who's the hot new author? I don't even, I don't even want to think about that. I don't know. I don't know. The only no author one American, is Knaus. American books are waning you know it's just mm. no i'm serious I mean, well that's you think why about... we need lauren euler on the show to talk about that that's a great theme for her she has and you think about, about that. the most sophisticated interesting writers that also had a cro- mainstream crossover success there was like ken osgard and ferrante right i mean yeah, that's yeah, who i ferrante. think of no Amer- and there are interesting parallels between those i don't know ferrante's work as well but i should read it i read part of it but um all i'm saying is they are not American, so you know, take from that what you will. That. But I, I mean, also these writers have achieved like popular. They're not hermetically literary, or you mm. know, nor are they. Good. I'm. Da- I'm yeah. very. Oh, of course. I very much approve of popular success. Yeah, I mean crossover fame. I mean, at least for I can't speak as much for Ferrante, but I mean, it's it is somewhat shocking that a a book as in some uh, you know dense. As the, as my struggle did achieve its mainstream popular success, whether or not anyone actually, I guess we kill, we don't know if anyone actually read it because I'm always skeptical yeah. that okay, it, it was like I mean we have barely read it. it. There was a lot of discourse, but but even that's yeah. something I suppose. I think yeah, did anyone, I mean I guess it does benefit from the fact that it's not it's not like formally difficult. Yeah, I mean if you wanted to read all of my struggle in a few weeks you could it wouldn't it's not like there's not you're not decoding something it's not enigmatic or it's no finnegan's wake yeah it's no finnegan's wake i mean although in conclusion wait for our new my struggle cbs sitcom starring carl uva canasgard to reignite interest (laughs) in the novels in the meantime i'm looking we're looking for someone to shop this to so you know, one of my favorite podcasts that I can't talk about here 
recently dropped some merch and i'm thinking maybe we should follow that lead and produce some merch produce some merch for our maybe if we're lucky upwards of 100 people who listen to the show what about for each other like just as as it to be like i mean we're a team we need uniforms we we gotta be cool yeah team spirit i still have that philosophy shirt you gave me uh at one point oh yeah was alan shrift's face on it yeah nice we should get him on the pod. Bring Shrift. I would love the to pod. have him on the pod. Yeah, Alan Shrift. He's in Paris. I think he's like losing I'm sure his he's mind with Louis C.K. Yeah. <laughs> and Roman Polanski. No, no, I don't. I'm not insinuating anything about him. He's total gentleman, as far as I know. Oh him. yeah, yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. Um. But yeah, yeah. Sure, we could we could make merch uh for ourselves. That's not a bad idea. Just go to the Michaels, get some you know <laughs> markers. <laughs> etc some uh, yeah at least um if you get a cool design well hey if you genuinely would want to get merch for our podcast let us know right in yeah if there's an intro i I listen to the consumers in the audience so yeah we can even focus group it we could we could focus group it we could focus group this whole podcast because hey if we could get everyone who listens to this podcast to buy a t-shirt we could almost make a thousand dollars Oh my god. <laughs> Imagine that. I'd never even thought about profiting off this venture. But and please don't think about it because it probably won't happen. But No, it's it's an A vocation. I mean that's why it's free, you know. Right? Yeah, exactly. Well we will never pay well this, but we will accept heartily accept uh endorsements for numbing dick wipes. We want to make that clear. Oh yeah. Roman Roman For the wipes. Roman wipes. I would really like to do live reads for that. Unfortunately, I've had absolutely zero opportunities to test those out recently. Oh, Although, do you have them? No, but <laughs> I was like, true. I mean, you know, with me, it's more like I—it's the opposite. I got—I got death grip up the wazoo, so I, yeah. I have no need for those. Um, <laughs> but I—I'm just curious. Uh, I'm unhinged. I don't know. I it's 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 like just a who, weird who else game. is on hinge in pennsburg pennsylvania well i said it to philly oh, okay. but the thing is i can't really easily see anybody so it's sort of all mood <sighs> although yeah conversations just kind of decay after a few messages i i lose enthusiasm i i mean what are we gonna i guess i should say i'm a podcaster that might help mm. me out yeah that might help you out there's nothing woman want like a young podcaster yeah that's the hottest type of guy right now it's firefighters doctors yeah podcasters okay that's i mean what if, i've heard on the street i knew that um that's why i started you know i started this podcast with a pussy you know yeah yeah i didn't know that <laughs> you that's the first thing you said to me when i brought <laughs> up this idea i should that's Said, I mean, is there a chance it'll get me laid? Lo and behold, I have the most monkish existence <laughs> in my life. Uh, here I am, just podcasting in my cell. But you yeah. know, thank God for this because it's it's a life raft. It's it's my, as Morrissey says, the rubber ring. Yes, so um, true. I'm well. Yeah, I'm glad we could. You know, we could make this thing together. It's a long history of collaboration we've established. We do. We have a very long history of collaboration. So it's only just begun. Only. It's and only it's literally only just begun because every time now we say, well, we're going to we're gonna keep going with the book. And I think we made it to page yeah. 40. 
Yeah. <laughs> no, literally, we will be doing this until we die. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if we if we try to make it through all of my struggle, we will be geriatric. They we will still be working on that. Geriatric. Still the working time. on that novel, Drew. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> Look, I can't have ki- I can't have kids till I write this book. <laughs> I'm like shriveled. <laughs> I'm still waiting. You're still waiting. I'm still writing. All my artistic and domestic lives to <laughs> just like shooting blanks into the void. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's enough material for me to try to sift through and edit. So. Oh, you're gonna have a ball. Oh, yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, Thank you for listening. If you're listening to this, uh, as always, feel free to write in. We'd love to hear from you. We love Uh, you. You know, if you can think of any famous people, especially, who would want to be a guest on this, let us know. Because we're trying to expand our listenership. Listen, Lauren Oiler. famous people, I mean, people with, like, maybe 10K or more followers on Twitter. I'm talking Lauren Oiler. James Touchwood, if you're listening, <laughs> we are big fans of your work. You are. We'd love notice. nothing more than to discuss this writer with you. I know, uh, Euler, you've got a new collection coming out. We can't wait. No, to it's a novel. It. Oh, fuck, a novel. We can't wait to promote it. Yeah. Um, I'm one of the world's biggest. Something smells burning in my. Oh no. Well, That's I'm one true. of the What's world's... happening? Some, something smells like smoke, but I don't know. I'm not cooking anything. Um, I'm going to promote Lauren Oiler's work, is all I'm saying. So. Okay. Whether she likes it or not. I've never read her. I've Oh, she had one essay that I think I read. Well, a negative. I think it was a negative review of Tolentino. Oh, yes. The famous one. Is that where she made her, made her name? Mm, I think it might be. She cut her teeth on Gia Tolentino. Who was herself the inspiration for Knausgaard's Book of Ethics. Uh, wait, really? No. <laughs> Can you imagine Knausgaard reading like, Wow, it's song, really you know? true that women always have to be self-optimizing. <laughs> He's like, what? what is this? <laughs> what is this Instagram so face? <laughs> he like, He's like rehearsing Instagram face in the mirror. <laughs> <laughs> and he cuts himself up. Yeah.